Miss Jackie, can you hear me? Okay. Yesterday, Mr. Otis had a surprise birthday party. He turned 90 years old, and Miss Jackie had to lie to get into the party. <laughs> Miss Jackie, did not want to make her a liar again, said that she was going to go forward this morning. <laughs> I hope you're not going to lie again. No, no. <laughs> anyway, it was a wonderful, wonderful um, birthday, surprise birthday. Got to see Mr. Otis cry and, and uh, happy, happy tears, you know, and just beautiful to, to see that. And um, speaking of going forward, I was told I had to go forward because of Wednesday night Bible class. Well, number one, turn off your cell phones. Because your alarm may go off, right? My alarm went off. But it was at 8 o'clock, so Bible class was technically over, right? <laughs> anyway, um, I was told that I had to take my medicine. And so, well, that's what that was for. I, you guys trying to keep me honest, so I'm trying to do good. So keep your phones off. All right. That said, back in November, we um, were supposed to have begun a, a series on the family. And, well... Things kind of went awry for me, and now we're back. So we're in the middle of a short series of lessons on the family, and we'll kind of go through um, some of it this month. And uh, hopefully this lesson will, I think you'll gain something, even though a lot of the lesson itself is not new for you. I hope you gain something from a big perspective of our God and our reflecting his image through the family and mar marital relationships that we have. So that said... Jesse read for us from the very beginning, right, with regard to this concept of marriage. And when you look at that passage in verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2, it is a passage that's going to be quoted again a number of times and in a variety of contexts, generally limited to marriage. But I want to read that passage one more time and see if we can make sense of this phrase. In verse 23, Adam said, in reference to his new um, person, new woman, this life. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, what's interesting about this is, you know, for all that some, some of us might have moved on from the old King James. This is where I think the old King James actually shines. In particular, in this phrase right here, the Old English is more literal and thus more in line, I think, with helping us to visualize this very concept of woman. You see, when it says we hear she shall be called woman, it is the same word that we use for wife. It is the same word used for marriage. The word marriage otherwise would not be in our Bible. It's a relatively new concept in the scheme of world history and it gives us a concept of joining together and what have you but this is the word like I'm going to take a wife you'll say I'm going to take a woman same thing I'm going to get married same thing and so here is this very concept and the concept over here about this woman being joined to this man is another phrase that is I guess on one stance difficult for us to comprehend we just take it, we run with it, we say we understand it, you know, they're, they're married. 
They're joined together. Well, what does that mean, this one flesh? And so that's kind of what we're going to be looking at, right? So if we're looking at it just real simply from a biblical standpoint, we have two separate lives that are made, right? And yet, if we were to, I was having this conversation with Julie yesterday, if we were to try and communicate what that really means to someone that has never, ever been a part of the human race, it would be a very confusing thing, right? Try and explain to, well, an alien would be foreign to the human race, naturally, and I'm not talking about aliens like that just someone that's not earthly and and here's a person or a thing that you're trying to communicate right through this language through this vehicle we call language and a, a particular language known as English and we're saying here's what human is a human we can say might have some hands and feet and fingers but this human is complex because by getting to know this one human doesn't mean you know the totality of what human is, right? And, and that's what we're talking about here. Here's a person that was made, Adam, right? Man. And in all the complexity that makes up this man, he does not represent the totality of human race, of humankind. And then all of a sudden, you have another human, completely different human, but yet human right and so now we have a male and a female called human and we've given them names that we now refer to as Adam and Eve right and Eve means life or life giver right and for whatever these these two humans are they're going to be joined together as one that's that's a very foreign thing to explain to someone. We just readily accept it, but there's a lot behind this. And I believe what is behind this is the very image of God. And I'm hoping to bring that out through the sermon. Sometimes when we just talk about the marriage relationship being unified, that's wonderful. But if we get the concept of this marriage here where two separate autonomous lives are coming together to be one life, then we get to see what God had intended for this thing that Scripture refers to as one flesh or as marriage. All right, so that's what we're going to be looking at. So, Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's what we're looking at thing is what constitutes this thing we call marriage because I've heard all kinds of Bible studies and me personally I've not had anyone that would just slam dunk this is it I want you to think about it think through some of these questions must government now don't limit your mindset to 2019 in the United States of America I want you to think worldwide okay every culture every era since Adam and Eve. Must government be involved to make marriage legal? I already got some of you already answering questions, right? A lot of you going, no, okay. If it does, what happens if there's no government? Like Adam and Eve had no government, right? Or there are other governments that say, we want no part of this thing called marriage. And let it be known, there is talk even amongst um, 
the Supreme Court, I think, with regard to should we get out of this thing called marriage as far as government. So what happens if the government's not involved, right? Because in our modern situation, government is involved, particularly in our context. How about this? Must there be a social ceremony, right? If you start getting yourself and saying, well, we follow the Bible, do Bible things in Bible ways, guess what we find in the Bible? Social ceremony, right? John chapter 2, Jesus went to a wedding. Therefore, boom, Bible authority, we all must have social ceremonies. But that's the way some people may use scripture reasoning, right? So if we look at that, what happens if governments don't allow or circumstances don't allow in this country in the days of slavery you had masters that would have the authority that says you can or cannot get married if you were a slave <clears throat> and sometimes the slaves would say we're going to get married regardless of what our master says and they would but they would not have a ceremony because it would bring attention to them you have situations like that. Maybe it's finances. You don't have the means to do so. So, social ceremonies. How about this? Does the marriage bed mandate that you are married? So I'm trying to be discreet with our children here. But if the two come together and be joined as one flesh, does that in and of itself mean that you're married? If so... We have a word called fornication, right? That's illicit relations. And if that's the case, when, when two people come together outside the covenant called marriage, does that mean that they are now married? For instance, go to 1 Corinthians 6. Read this passage with me in 1 Corinthians. And then we get some insight into what we're talking about when, when this marriage seems so easy for us. So, you know, Adam and Eve, they got married. How do you know? What, what, what exactly does that mean, right? What constitutes being one flesh? So here in chapter 6, the Apostle Paul naturally is talking about where upon um, this person is joined to another person, right? The whole concept of marriage. Verse 16, do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. He quotes from Genesis chapter 2. And so he goes on and say, says this. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Okay, some of your Bible translations might say something like, he who is joined to a harlot is one flesh with her. That'd be more in line with the literal. And the author is trying to play off of this. There is a fleshly joining and a spiritual joining. But notice that the concept and how he uses this one flesh concept that is supposed to be applied to marriage, but is not applied to marriage in this case. So again, if we're talking about a variety of ways, what mandates a man and a woman coming together and being called one flesh? Right? Um, I know that some of the laws in our country still are on the books where if two people are living, cohabitating together for X number of years, 
And in some cases, I'm, I'm not sure in all the, the nuances of these laws, if they have children, whatever the situation is, they're determined to be common law married, right? Now, naturally, I don't know how much that's practiced uh, from a legal standpoint, but those are things that have been on the books because government at some point was not involved and got involved. So there's a variety of ways to consider this thing called one flesh that is referred to in a marital sense. So what is this marital sense of one flesh? I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and notice the first century usage. Okay, So chapter 7... The church at Corinth writes to the Apostle Paul. They've got some, some dissenting issues with regard to various marriage circumstances. And he's going to address them. And he starts off with the just general teaching about marriage. See if this is in line with our 2019 social norm in the United States. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. It is good for a man not to touch a woman, a very idiomatic expression about the two being joined as one. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Okay, so because of fornication, because of sexual morality, get married. Be honest, how many of us will use that as advice today to our young? You know, we're saying, don't know. It's got to be from love. not Because you never know if you're with that person for the rest of their life, you might have the most horrific marriage, right? So first century, Paul is saying part of the purpose of marriage is so that you, because you cannot keep yourself controlled, get into this relationship called marriage where you're bound to this person and you can have that relationship. That's what the scriptures are saying. Right? Very, very, um, I don't know what the phrase, if it's uh, ancient, uh, that may not be the word I'm, I'm using, but some would say that's dated, you know, advice. I would not want to give that advice today. Yeah, there are better reasons to get married than, than this, right? And so here's what Paul is saying, though, with regard to coming together in a binding um, covenant agreement called marriage because of sexual morality. So it includes then a physical joining together. It's not exclusive to this, but it is inclusive of it, right? The Jews would have a practice, and again, I'm trying to be discreet. The Jews would have a practice whereupon um, on the wedding day, the man and the woman would join themselves together and show proof to everyone at the party, the family in particular, so that they know that she had not been with someone before. And, and that just was the practice. That was the cultural norm, right? And so once that happened, it was, everything was ratified. They are recognized by, by the people that witnessed their coming together and being one flesh. So there is this inclusion of a physical joining together. Then, I love this passage in Ephesians 5 because we read it often, but we never typically think of it in this way. But there is a metaphoric and, and also a relational Oneness. So I want you to read with me. Ephesians 5. Go to verse 25. And then once we get past this biblical stuff, I want to try and tug at our heartstrings a little bit. Ephesians 5 again. Naturally, verse 22 starts this conversation of 
what wives and what husbands uh, ought to be doing in the relationship. But notice how he goes on with the conversation. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So everything that he is doing, he's doing for her, the church, Christ is. Just as a husband, everything he's doing, he's sacrificing for her that they would be holy because he is holy, right? The Lord is holy, and he wants his bride to be holy. And so everything he does is to promote her being holy. So he sacrifices, and that's the love that he gives to her. So then, verse 28, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. That is the concept of one flesh. Right? Go back to 1 Corinthians 7. Her body is not her own. It's his. His body is not his own. It's hers. Because they're one. And he's saying of here, Paul is, in verse 28, if you love your wife, you're actually loving yourself because you are one. And in fact... That's what he goes on to quote. For we are members, verse, uh, well, let me back up to verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of, and his bones. This is going back to Genesis 2 all over again. And thus he quotes in verse 30, um, 31. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. So we're, we're talking about this concept of, of being one. Now, let me back up again. Because if we're understanding this concept of marriage, God has given us this thing called marriage, not simply because, you know what? Willy-nilly, I think that's what you guys should do. Get married. What God is doing is he's reflecting or giving us a means by which we can see his very nature. We get to see a facet, an aspect, an attribute of our God through this one area of life called marriage. Think about it. Let me see if, I'm not sure if it's on the next slide. Yes, it is. Okay. Think about it. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying. I want you to go to John chapter 17. I want you to see this prayer, and I want you to see what's behind this prayer, and then how it applies to this conversation we, we call marriage. So in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for himself. He's praying for his believers, praying for would-be believers. Notice what he says here in the text in verse 22. Let me back up to verse 20. I do not pray for these alone right his disciples but also for those who will believe in me through their word so right now there's no fellowship with these would-be believers but he's praying for fellowship with these would-be believers okay so he says 
it is for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us. There's this concept of one flesh, but instead of one flesh, it's one spirit. There's this oneness. That they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you loved me. Now, notice this next point of this verse. This is the one that really I want us to, to drive home for what sets the tone for the previous words that was just said in this prayer. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now let that sink in for a minute. Before the foundation of the world, what existed? For all that is debated, and there is debate about God's creation before the foundation of the world, what is not debatable is God. God existed before the foundation of the world, naturally. Is he all by himself? See, there's this whole thing of monotheism that we're talking about, right? We, we're talking about one God. But how do you explain this one God? Right? So we have passages like Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Right? Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And how do the scriptures portray the Son and the Holy Spirit? But as equal with God. Right? Elohim. And so, are they different gods? It's kind of like explaining human again. Different human? How do you explain human? Marriage brings that concept of God where you've got these different entities, but they're one. And we're trying to do it in a vehicle called language that humans who are limited in understanding, limited in the vehicle of communication are trying to explain this deity that transcends human understanding. So what does God do? But he gives us a variety of ways, one of which is called marriage, to reflect that very image of what makes him God. Right? And one of those things that is a fundamental aspect of God's attribute is his love. Right? 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, and in verse 16. God is love. Not God has love. Not that God loves. All those are true. But God is love. It's something that is his very essence. Right? God is truth. His very essence is truth. His very essence is love. But yet, that's not the totality of who he is. It's an aspect. An essential aspect. But just an aspect. 
And when we're looking at this concept then of marriage, we're looking at it from that standpoint of what constitutes this one flesh. And this one flesh is a metaphoric understanding of two physical human beings, one flesh, coming together as one. But it's much more than just that, right? It's not limited to a fleshly relationship. It is so much greater than that. Just as God is more than the sum parts of this Father, Son, and Spirit, there's a lot more to it than that. So complex. But one of the most beautiful complexities is this concept that He is love. So before the foundation of the world, the Father is loving the Son. The Son is receiving love from the Father. The Son also loves the Father. There is this communal, relational, social aspect of love and when we're looking at marriage what marriage does is it gives us an earthly view of a heavenly type of a relationship okay so each marriage kingdom and i'm just using that as a phrase so imagine your family as a kingdom right where within your kingdom you reflect this image of god husband loving his wife love a wife loving her husband parents giving life Call them children, right? Because that's what, what God has given. Part of human is being able to beget life, to create life. That's part of that limited sovereignty that God has given us in reflecting his image. And so here we are. We, we have this relationship where we love and we want to share our love and it's overflowing and it overflows into the form of having children. And we raise our children, ideally speaking, giving this love, showing this love, even teaching this love so that our children grow up reflecting the image that we have, a loving relationship, a one relationship. That's what happens. And so this family unit in Genesis chapter 2 ideally is reflecting the very image of God himself. And it's a place then that starts to branch out so that it's not limited to husband and wife, but with the children. And of course, they grow up and they get married and they have their family units. And of course, now you start having a community of neighbors and so on and so forth, all related in this family. And eventually it gets to the point, naturally, you get so numerous and people go far off. And of course, sin has entered the picture that now you're talking about the world. That this, this family kingdom is all throughout the world. When sin entered this world, the thing that combats sin is right here. Some people say, Mitch, you, you preach so much about this love that it seems like overboard. I'm telling you, there is nuances we have yet to discover in our own studies about this aspect of God that is so entrenched into who we are to be as individuals, we can never abuse it. Now, you can get one-sided, right? You never deal with sin and what have you. But you can never get to the full, just like you can never get to the fullness of God himself. You can never get all the aspects, right? Kind of like a diamond. At least a diamond, you can eventually count how many, I don't know what they're called, but those angles, <laughs> facets that's the only thing i can think of right with god 
it's never ending, the facets. You're always learning more about him. And even with this thing called love, you're learning facets of this thing called love about his image and how it is reflected in and through the lives of those he has created. And that's what we're talking about here. So ultimately, when we're looking at this concept of one flesh, we're talking about the kind of love for one another that reflects God's image, right? So that said, when we look at our lives, I'm going to put this on pause for now because I still have a few more minutes before we even get, I don't know if, oh, I don't even know, never mind. I, all my things are gone. I've used the, the, the clicker so much I can't even see what's what on there. All this is just biblical understanding. Here's the thing. Life is not limited to ink on a page. Marriage's ideal is seen in Scripture, but we also see in Scripture, let alone our actual marriages, is hard. Right? Remember, you have two separate individuals coming together. We're not perfect in our love. So guess what happens when when your spouse puts the dishes in the wrong part of the kitchen when they're being put away. And that's just nothing, right? What happens when it comes to decorating the house? We're still not even talking about true life yet. And all of a sudden, we have little quibs. What happens after so many years, our children are growing up, We've gone through all the highs and lows that most, if not just about every marriage has. And then you hear, as is not uncommon anymore, unfortunately, the, I don't know who you are. You're not the person I married. How many of you know Elizabeth Jennings? Uh, she's an England poet from the latter part of the 20th century. You would, yeah. Miss Poet over here, Georgia. I want you to see the sobering reality that takes place in some marriages, and I want it to serve as a motivator in every one of us who currently is married. And I'm telling you, for those who are not married, please do not be discouraged from this standpoint. And some of you might say, well, I'm very encouraged, actually, because the way you're sounding is kind of a little depressing there at times. <laughs> there's beauty in marriage. There's beauty in being single may both be unto the glory of God. Here's a poem by Elizabeth Jennings that is very sobering, and I want it to motivate those who are married to get that flame kindled or rekindled in some cases. One flesh, Elizabeth Jennings. Lying apart now, each in a separate bed. He with a book, keeping the light on late. She like a girl dreaming of childhood. All men elsewhere, it is as if they wait. Some new event. The book he holds unread. Her eyes fixed on the shadows overhead. Tossed up like flotsam from a former passion, how cool they lie. They hardly ever touch. Or if they do, it is like a confession of having little feeling or too much. Chastity faces them, a destination for which their whole lives 
work preparation. Strangely apart, yet strangely close together. Silence between them like a thread to hold and not wind in. And time itself a feather touching them gently. Do they know they're old? These two who are my father and my mother, whose fire from which I came has now grown cold. We, we live in a time, modern, American, Western Hemispherean type mindset where this passion we, we call love, right? This flame, this desire that we want to be with each other. We choose each other. It's what brings many marriages in our modern culture together. And of course, for many, this passion, this fire grows cold. I want you to think of the why. It's so easy. It's easy for me to be selfish. It's easy for me to wish, I wish Julie did this and I wish Julie did that. And it's on Julie now. It's easy to do. If you want to have the kind of marriage that reflects and honors God, the scriptures were right there. It was teaching us the whole time. Sacrifice yourself. You reflect the image of Jesus, who's sacrificial. Always giving, always giving, always giving. In many marriages, I'm not getting, I'm not getting, I'm not getting is often what we hear or say in our hearts. And if we can get the kind of love where we're always sacrificing, always giving of ourselves, I want you to know that number one, I believe the fire gets rekindled. It can, it can always happen. I mean, you're talking about marriages for centuries, millennial, where people have never known each other are put together in a thing called marriage, let alone we having the opportunity to choose each other. Where they have beautiful marriages. Because it's not from that romantic vantage point. It is very much whether it's from a practical financial standpoint, social standpoint, whatever the reasons are, but these two strangers come together and eventually they, quote unquote, fall in love with one another. And the only times that they don't is when, again, this practice of God's image is not being utilized. And that is a genuine self-sacrificing, always giving outwardly love. That's what does it. And that's what reflects God's image. That's what is a tool of evangelism to your children, to your other family members, to your neighbors, co-workers. And when you're not having this kind of love, I'm not talking necessarily about the romantic side of things necessarily, although I believe that is inclusive. You're talking about a genuine care and love where you are at one with another person. And you've committed yourself to being one with this other person that your goals are the same. Even through your differences, your goals are the same. The father and the son had the same goals. The son relinquished himself so that he could do his father's will. That's what Jesus said. When that happens in a marriage, then you get questions like, how do you guys do it? How do you do it? 
you always will get similar answers. Never, it will never change. We sacrifice. I pray we always do that. Jesus sacrificed because he loved the world so much. He gave himself up on the cross. He sacrifices as the husband in a marriage relationship called the head and the church. We just read it out of Ephesians 5, right? He says, this is not a great, this great mystery is this. I'm not talking about this physical marriage right now. I'm talking about Jesus and the church. But he uses the concept of marriage because that's what allows us to see the very image of God and the relationship we can have with him. And he wants you. If you're here and you're not a child of God, he wants you and he wants to turn you into his beautiful bride. And he will sacrifice everything for you to be made holy so that you guys can be one spirit presented before the heavenly father on the day of judgment. To do that, you need to die to self. You need to give up your will and in one sense, sacrifice it naturally. And that's where this baptism is like this burial where you are dying to self and you're raised by Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. That is the desire that God has because he loves you. And brethren, of course, we love you too. And if you're struggling in your marriage or you're struggling in just life, whether you're single, divorced, recently widowed as we have a number among us, by all means, we need to be praying for each other as the body of Christ. That's your invitation. Why don't you get your books open and we'll sing the song. <clears throat>